Shalom, saints. Shalom. We've been looking at the seventh of, of Daniel. We want to look again to that tonight. So allow us to read it and then perhaps to recapitulate a little bit of what we discussed and look at the interpretation of Daniel's vision. Daniel 7. Uh, seven, 907. 907, yes, no, really 909. Let's start with verse 19. If we might, we'll read the vision. And then, uh, and if you have questions, ask us. And I'm going to put a timeline on the board, just a simple one, to try to uh, re describe what we were discussing with these ten nations and seven kings. Verse 15. And I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all this. And so he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, whose teeth were of iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with its feet. And of the ten horns that were in its head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke very great things, whose look was more stout than its fellows. I beheld the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. And he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down, and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Now you remember we've been emphasizing that out of these ten <coughs> kings one would arise, which would put down three and reign on the, over the balance of the seven. So there'll be ten nations and seven kings with another king reigning over those seven and those ten nations. He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. It seems like that's timely right now. And think to change the times and the laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time, times, and the dividing of time. Time one year, times two years, dividing of time half a year or three and one half years. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume it and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. All right, just a quick look here now. We've been discussing these ten kings and how they arose, and uh, I think we went back to a couple of passages in the Revelation to try to illustrate it. We're looking at a period, which we'll talk more about momentarily as we have time, that is seven years long totally. It's divided into two parts of three and one-half years each. When the time of Jacob's trouble is addressed in the various passages of Scripture, Daniel 9 in particular, it's seen as a week of years. The Hebrew word is Shabuah. The Shabuah is, I think there's an H on the end of that, I always leave that H off. The Shabuah is literally sevens. It comes from the word Shabbat, which means to seven oneself. So this three and one half years, the first half of it is a period which is marked by peace. We're not teaching the book of the Revelation right now, but you recall Revelation chapter 6. And when the first seal is broken and the first rider on a white horse goes forth, he goes forth on a, a white horse carrying a bull but no arrows. And the second rider goes forth on a red horse, and the scripture says he goes forth to take peace from the earth. Now obviously, the second rider can't take peace from the earth unless peace has been brought to the earth. Paul said, they shall say in that day, peace and safety... And then, lo, sudden destruction comes upon them like a woman in travail, and they shall not escape. That first rider is bringing in peace, and so it's a utopian age for three and one half years when everything that Satan promised to the woman in the garden is realized. That is to say, 
If you'll learn to shun evil and choose good, you'll be like God. The whole humanistic philosophy is going to realize the zenith of its power during this period. So this peaceful period sees the rise to power of ten kings over ten nations. Do I have the same of each? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay. Should have done hash marks. Now, when we move into this second period of the warfare and the cataclysm or the, the uh, time of wrath as it's addressed uh, in the Revelation, then we still have the ten kings. Do it this way, huh? But we only have five, four, five, six, seven. Uh, we have the ten kingdoms, but we only have seven kings reigning over them, and we have one dominant king who is in control of these seven and those ten, ten nations. Now that's what's being described here. So the time, times, and half a time... Hmm, haste makes waste. Times and half time. Or 1260 days as it shows up elsewhere in Scripture, or 42 months as it shows up elsewhere in Scripture. Revelation chapter 12 describes 1260 days. Revelation chapter 11, 42 months. The term 42 months is Gentile. The term 1260 days and time, time, half a times is uh, Jewish. Uh, their comprehension was focusing on days and times. Whereas well, the term 42 months does not have the significance to a Jew that it does to a Gentile. So Gentile dominion is addressed in the 42 months. But in either case, it's always this same three and one half years that divides Daniel's 70th week in half. So these three kings are going to be put down right about this time, about midway in the week, when this one arises. Now, he arises out of these ten. Will you come with me please to Revelation in chapter 17. Now, there's a lot in this chapter that deals with the mystery of iniquity, and I cannot take time this evening to address the whole issue. Probably before we're through with this, we'll have to come back and look at it again. But if you'll note Revelation 17 and verse 11, maybe I ought to read verse 10. And there are seven kings. Anyone have a new American? Maybe an Amplified. All right, would you read please verse uh, 10 uh, from the Amplified? Any of them? Verse 10 in chapter 17. 17, yes, sir. And they are also seven kings. Okay, they are also seven kings. Now that also refers to the mountains that are referred to in verse 9. They are also, that is the seven mountains, are seven kings. King James reads there are seven kings. That really doesn't give the significance of the context. So these are, or they are also, seven kings. Five are fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. When he comes, he must continue a short space. Now there's a lot to be said about that. The seven kingdoms that held uh, Israel in dominion are referred to here historically. Now when you come to verse 11, And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and he is of the seven. In other words, he comes out of one of these other previous nations. He is of this. Now we're talking about kings here and not nations in particular, which are the ten, but the kings that are reigning over those nations. I want to make that specific. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. All right, come back with me to Daniel, please. Yes. One hour? Uh, other than it, it uh, focuses on a particular... A moment in time when God's going to do a particular thing. Beyond that point, I have no biblical interpretation of it. Uh, for example, the destruction of Babylon is spoken of as coming in one hour. Uh, uh, Jesus' death is referred to as the hour of his uh, trial. So it's and, an hour. And yes, not the hour, but an hour. All right, very well put. Yes. All right. So he's just describing a particular moment in time. We say uh, just a minute, but it might be. 15 minutes, or it might be three seconds. You know, it's I, I could call it a Hebrewism, sir. I said amen. Yes. <laughs> Appointments. My wife says just a minute. <laughs> and you, as she goes into the dress shop. Huh? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, now first of all, before we get into this again, I want to emphasize that in the interpretation uh, that the angel's giving to Daniel, there is an overriding theme that he's intending to give to Daniel, and that is that the saints shall possess the kingdom. Now in the midst of all of this turmoil that's going on among the kingdoms of this world, the believer ever needs to keep in mind that the ultimate end of the program is that the saints shall possess the kingdom. And the encouragement that's to be found in this book has that as its theme, that regardless of the heathen raging and the people imagining a vain thing, the ultimate end of the victory belongs to the people of God. We ever need to keep that in mind. Uh, take heed lest we be carried away with uh, overmuch fretting over what the political systems of this world do, whether they be ours or some other nations. I know many of you have wrung your hands at the uh, seeming short-sightedness and even perhaps stupidity that seems to go on in Washington and other places at times, but you understand that they're being moved by the prince of this world and the God of this age, and the whole program is moving into the ultimate end of God's purpose. So they're going to do some very ridiculous things. They are not seeing with the clarity that you see as to the end of the matter. They're struggling desperately to correct problems they're looking at right now. They're, of necessity, very short-sighted. Now let me bring you back to verse 24 again, please, of Daniel 7. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them. Now that's what I've tried to illustrate here. These ten kingdoms, permit me to uh, rehearse again, these ten kingdoms are a federated kingdom that comes out of Europe. Now don't slide the United States into this, and don't even put Russia into this, and for that matter, don't even put the Middle East into this. These are European kingdoms that arise out of the geographical boundaries which were compassed by the old Roman Empire. Just as a sidelight to this, a lot of us grieved over the fact that uh, when uh, uh, Churchill and uh, Stalin and uh, ours... Roosevelt sat down at Yalta and they divided Europe. We grieved terribly over that and lamented the ignorance that was involved in it. And, and doubtless that's true insofar as the end result. But we need to remember that God is still governing in the affairs of the children of men. And when that line was drawn uh, through Europe, while we look at it as an injustice on the part of what happened to those in Eastern Europe, Europe afterwards and to this present day, Yet from the divine point of view, the geographical boundary by that division was set between the old Roman Empire in the east and in the west. So that the western uh, Roman Empire now is set aside to the western world and those are the nations that are going to be included in this ten federated kingdoms. Now the seed for that right now is already developing, of course, in what we uh, think of as the European economic community or the common market, if you would. Now we watch that thing very closely and nations tend to go in and out of the thing. Right now there are ten of them. But that could change tomorrow. Somebody could resign and somebody could uh, join. It will shift around. That's only the seedbed for the ultimate, uh, what one could uh, call properly, a United States of Europe. So that they're bound together not just by uh, economy but also by a political union that they voted on and agreed upon themselves. And that's what we'll be looking at here. And this isn't going to reach its peak, its real strength. We may see it developing, but it isn't going to reach its real strength until we come into this time. I might also emphasize that the Antichrist will not be manifest as the Antichrist until we come to the middle of this period. That's when he's really going to be unfolded, revealed for what he is. That's indicated in uh, Revelation chapter 13 that we cited before. Uh, obviously, when he subdues these three kings and reigns over the rest, his, how shall I say, autocratic uh, reign is going to be manifest. Verse 25, And he shall speak great words. Now, the he that's speaking the great words is this one king that's reigning over the other seven. He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Now, keep your finger here and come over with me to Revelation 13 again. I want to uh, just draw the parallel so we see who we're talking about and how they... Um, the same person is addressed. <coughs> I'll start with verse 5 of Revelation 13. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue 42 months. Now there's that Gentile terminology again. We're looking at a Gentile kingdom. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God. Now that's precisely the same scene that Daniel is viewing in chapter 7. To blaspheme his name in his tabernacle and 
them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome him. So there shouldn't be any doubt in our mind that we're looking at precisely the same individual. Revelation is simply amplifying what we're learning here from Daniel. And power is given to him to continue a time, times, and a dividing of times, or those 42 months, noting the same time period, the last half of Daniel's 70th week. And then judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume it and to destroy it unto the end. Now, the beginning of that consuming begins here in the middle of Daniel's 70th week. It continues to the close, and that close, of course, is going to be marked by the second coming of the Lord Jesus, and this second coming uh, brings him to a place called the two G's in that? There's two D's in it, I don't know. Armageddon. The Hebrew is Armageddon, or the Valley of the Mount of Megiddo. That valley is a plain called Esdralon that stretches from Mount Carmel. If I can get a little map of Israel in here. Proportions not totally accurate. Oh. Nile River. <laughs> Dead Sea. How about that? And Galilee. Now, right about here is a mount called Megiddo. And there's a plain called Esdralon that runs between Mount Carmel out here at this jetty. And, of course, uh, the uh, port of uh, Haifa is up here. And uh, that is kind of a bowl-shaped area. And it's this, by the way, when Alexander the Great marched through this area, he stopped here, it is reported in history, and said this would be the perfect place for the last great battle of the world to be fought. I know what an interesting comment. Uh, his ancestors will have a part in that. So when this battle begins to take place here between the, the armies of the uh, Ten Nation Confederacy, the uh, Northern Confederacy, the King of the North, and the King of the South, and by the way, over here is the River Euphrates, and the Scripture tells us that when all of this begins to take place, that the River Euphrates will be dried up to make a way for the kings of the East. And the kings of the East begin to move in this direction, and it's generally felt by Bible scholars that that includes the great, includes the great Oriental powers, such as, as uh, the big China. one over there, China. Yes. And they'll begin to converge on this point as well. Now, when all of these armies begin to meet together here, the Lord Jesus is going to return at a place called Armageddon, at a time called Armageddon. Now, there have been warfares going on through this whole time, but it culminates in one great battle. It isn't like you've had peace up to this time and suddenly war breaks out. It's going to culminate in this great battle in Armageddon when all of these kingdoms come together and the Lord Jesus will appear on the scene and the prophet Isaiah points to it, the revelation points to it. Uh, he will tread the winepress of the wrath of God and there shall be done with him and this winepress, you understand how they made a winepress then? They put it in a great bowl-like effect and then they walked on it. Yes? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly what the Scripture prophesies that the Lord is going to do. He's going to tread the winepress of the wrath of God. He's going to crush out their blood, and it'll run, according to the Revelation prophecy, uh, about uh, uh, 1,500, 15,000 furlongs, or the distance of 187 miles from the plain of Esdralon down to a place called Bozrah. B-O-Z-R-A. Okay. Bozrah was a capital of the ki uh, kingdom of Edom. And uh, this uh, distance of 187 miles that's pointed to in the scripture, though we are not told the track, would be the distance down the Jordan River. And of course the Jordan River is the uh, uh, drain, the watershed for this area up through here. So when the Lord treads the winepress of the wrath of God, where the armies, not all the people now, just the armies, of the kingdoms of this world are gathered, and this one alone is in strength. 200 million. And by the way, it's noteworthy that when uh, the Apostle John prophesied concerning the strength of the army of the kings of the east being 200 million men, that there were not 200 million people on the face of the whole of God's green earth at that time. So that was quite a faithful prophecy, if you would. Oh, yeah. I mean, we think of a big city as being 4 million people. They thought of a big city uh, being 50,000. That was a huge city. So you can think of the numbers that are going to come together in this battle and be consumed in it. 
and the blood, the Scripture says, will run the depth of the horse's bridle. So the mean depth of that blood that's running in this valley will be the depth of the horse's bridles all the way down into the Dead Sea to the point of the capital of the old kingdom of, of Edom. And by the way, one of the results of Armageddon, uh, Isaiah prophesies that the waters of the Dead Sea shall be made sweet. I, I think that's quite appropriate that God should sweeten them with such an experience. After all, isn't that what makes the sinner sweet? Hmm? Blood. But in this case, it's judgment blood for a different purpose. Why uh, specifically that city? Why specifically? Why does it specifically end it? Well, that gives city? us the geographical boundaries from uh, the plain of Esralon to the city of Bozer on the south. God always tells us enough so that the eye of faith can discern what he's saying, but never enough to satisfy carnal curiosity. This carnal curiosity would have been satisfied to say that the blood is going to flow from the plain of Esterlon down the Jordan Valley into the southernmost end of the Dead Sea. Yeah. Then I wouldn't have to approach it by faith. Then I wouldn't have to search the Scriptures to find out what God is saying. This way i got to search the Scriptures. By the way, I'm not the only one that searched it. I hasten to say that. <laughs> this, so this whole territorial... Uh, uh, drainage is going to be a drainage ditch for the judgment of God. So the wine press is here, but the but the uh, wine runs out down that valley. I, I have to say this again. I say this every time I come to this point, but it just serves as an excellent illustration. It's hard for us to grasp mentally blood running the depth of the horse's bridles. That's a lot of blood. For those of you who have remed, uh, uh, read uh, Charles Dickens' book, uh, A Tale of Two Cities, You'll remember that he wrote that book uh, woven around events the time of the French Revolution as uh, they were related to London and Paris. And he notes in that book that they, they beheaded so many people in Paris. And you could get somebody beheaded just by accusing him of being a part of the aristocracy. He didn't have a trial. You know, he was just accused and he was beheaded. And so a lot of innocent people died. And so many people, Dickens wrote in that book, died in the city of Paris that the that the sewers overflowed with their blood. Now that's a powerful lot of people of blood, but you're only looking at one city, the population of which doesn't begin to compare with this carnage that's going to take place. And the ultimate end of that is that God calls for His heavenly garbage collectors for the fowls of the air uh, and the beasts of the field to come and devour much flesh, the prophet of God said. Well, that's getting quite a field from where we were, but... Um, that's the judgment throne set. Now, come with me to Revelation 5, and let's read once again the description of the setting of that throne. The event does, uh, is not culminated here. It's simply that the throne of judgment is set, and the one who has the right to judge possesses that privilege from the Father. Remember, we indicated to you that the Ancient of Days is the Father, and the Son of Man, and also the Most High is the Son. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a scroll written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. Now the one that's sitting on the throne is the Father. And I saw a strong angel proceeding with a loud voice, proclaiming, I'm sorry, with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Do you understand this, this book or scroll was rolled up and on, on the lip of that scroll were seven seals set. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the scroll, neither to look on it. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open or to read the scroll, neither to look, look on it. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the scroll and to, set, and to loose its seven seals. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now, here is the setting of the throne of judgment. Again, I remind you of John 5.22. The Father judges no man, but He's committed all judgment into the hands of the Son. The only reason that Jesus has the right to judge is because He has become the Lamb of God and taken away the sin of the world. Uh, John looked for a lion, but he saw a lamb as it had been slain. He comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah in His judgment on the earth. But he could not come as that lion if he had not first of all come as the lamb. We've contrasted uh, these two comings to you in their uh, various pictures in the scripture in time past. Any questions about this further? That was John 5.22. 5, 5, 5, 5, 5, 5, 5, 5, 5, 5.
Now, I want to pass these out for what they're worth. They're simply uh, uh, contrasting titles of, of Christ, uh, of the Father, of the Holy Spirit, and then, of course, of, uh, of uh, Satan, of the Antichrist, and the false prophet. The reason I'm citing this now, this is kind of free, it's really sort of peripheral. The reason I'm citing this, though, is I want you to see the intensity with which Satan goes about substituting his own purposes for those purposes of God. I want to read through them with you very quickly. This is not to suggest that it's not simple enough to understand, except that I want to, uh, often these things get hand handed out and we don't get back to them, and I want to uh, let this sink down in your thinking. And if anything needs to be explained as we read through, you might stop me. Now, first of all, understand that for the Trinity of the Godhead, Satan has also established his Trinity. I want to emphasize this. There are many among believers as well that deny the fact of a Trinity. And they will say to us that, uh, uh, well, the word uh, Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. Well, the, Trin the word Trinity doesn't need to appear in the Bible as long as I find a trinity in the Bible. It's quite evident that God is revealed as Father and as Son and as Holy Spirit. And obviously there is no singular act of any one member of the Godhead in which all three are not perfectly involved. And so that makes the demarcation line at times very difficult to discern, but it's nonetheless there. Now, the objection has been raised, particularly by the Russellites, that is the, what do you call them, JWs, uh, Jehovah's Witness, that... Uh, the uh, whole idea of a trinity is a pagan philosophy. Well, beloved, the reason that it's pagan is because Satan doesn't counterfeit $3 bills. Uh, you don't get anywhere counterfeiting something that doesn't exist. If you find the counterfeit, it's evidence of the truth. So the reason that there is a trinity in all of pagan society is because it is the purpose of Satan to lead men's hearts away from the truth. Someone has said, well, there is a Madonna and child, a legend of a Madonna and child in the history of every ethnic people in the world. Truth. Do you know why there is? Because from the time that Genesis 3.15 was spoken by the Father <coughs> to the snake, he began to set about contradicting what God was saying with his own scheme. That was the reason that Nimrod, Semiramis, and their so-called virgin son, Tammuz, became the symbol for the whole system of the mystery of iniquity. So that when Jesus was born, everybody would say, oh boy, here's another one, just like all the rest of them. By the way, do you remember when Gamaliel was, parenthesis, when Gamaliel was giving his, uh, not his defense, but he was defending the uh, disciples before the Sanhedrin, saying, take heed, brethren, what you do with these men? You remember the defense he gave included this comment? He said, do you remember that in the days of the taxing, there arose a great one named Judas and led away many people after himself and he was killed and his followers scattered. Mm -hmm. Now, he was attempting to point out that it wasn't wise to fight against this thing lest it be of God. He said, if it isn't of God, it'll come to nothing just like this fellow Judas and his followers did. But if it is of God, you'd be found to fight against God. He didn't explain that, but the Holy Spirit put that in there for another reason. What notable event took place in the days of the taxi? Jesus. Jesus was born. And in the days of the taxing arose this great one who led away many people after himself. What was the purpose of the snake in that? To lead attention away from the true Messiah to somebody else who would profess himself to be a deliverer. So the whole scheme of the snake has always been to present something that looked very much like the truth and seem to be carrying you in the same direction, but turned up a blind alley. So here is God's attitude toward all of his counterfeits. For the Christ and Antichrist. For the holy city of the New Jerusalem, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. It's always the other end of the spectrum. Instead of a virgin bride, which the church is for the Lord Jesus, he has a harlot woman for the Antichrist. Instead of the son of man, he is the man of sin. Instead of the righteous branch, he is the abominable branch. As a matter of fact, literally rendered Isaiah 14, it would read a stick detestable. Instead of the seed of the woman, the seed of the servant. Instead of an advocate, an adversary. 
Instead of the Lion of Judah, a roaring lion. Instead of the Lamb of God, the beast out of the sea. Instead of the Prince of Life, the Prince of this world. For the light of the world, the ruler of darkness. For the comforter, the accuser. For the mystery of godliness, the mystery of iniquity. For the truth, the lie. For the Most High God, the God of this age. For the Son of Righteousness, the power of darkness. For a Savior or destroyer. Now there are more that could be added to that as well. As I said, I just kind of throw that out for free. <coughs> All right, I wanted to put something on the board before I got here, but uh, since this is uh, school conference night, my wife and I had conferences. So I didn't get here to do it. Did somebody forget theirs? <laughs> if you did, you're not the only ones that did. Oh, bless you, brother. Thank you. Uh, praise the Lord. Just two more months in the Cedar Oak Whip Polony. <laughs> praise God. <laughs> I want to make the difference say this before I start putting it up and you can follow it I want to make the difference here between the terms that are used to describe the Antichrist and the terms that are used to describe the false prophet and sometimes these get confused and, and I uh, have to be very careful when I throw these terms out that I don't confuse them Now, as the sheet indicates, the Antichrist is a counterfeit Jesus Christ, whereas the false prophet is a counterfeit Holy Spirit. So this Antichrist comes out of the sea, and the false prophet comes out of the earth or out of the land. You have that, of course, in Revelation uh, 13 as well as other places. The Antichrist is the ultimate... Seed of the serpent. Uh, the little horn. Shall I put down, uh, uh, how do you spell little? L-E? L-I. L-I. L-E. Yeah, yeah, I mean. Uh, you want me to give uh, addresses for these? Revelation 13. Uh, Genesis uh, 3, 15, of course. I'll give you the chapter if you can't get it on here. Uh, Daniel 7, the little horn. 7-7, uh, seven, seven, is it? 7-8. Seven, um, Prince that shall come. I don't know if we'll have time to get to that tonight. One or two. Prince that shall come. That's Daniel 9-26. If I don't put a book on it, it's Daniel. The Desolator. All these terms used of the Antichrist. 927. The Dreadful Beast. Dreadful and terrible, really. 7-7 seven, seven of Daniel. And then he is the king of fierce countenance. What is that word under uh, uh, prince that shall come? What is that? Prince that shall come? Oh, this one, desolator. That's what I You couldn't read that? Well, the light is glaring off the board. Sure. Thank you for being kind. <laughs> Now, again, the false prophet, I'm going to get in my own way here, but you forgive me that just a moment. He comes out of the land. Now, you remember this one uh, has ten horns, and he is the little horn. There are ten horns associated with him, and he is the little horn. Uh, this one, the false prophet, is a, a beast with two horns, but uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, it's a clean beast, a lamb. Now, what's the reason for that? Anyone care to suggest? <coughs> Well, because he's dealing in the sphere of religion as opposed to the sphere of politics. And as Christ is a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, he's seen in the figure of a lamb because he's coming with a false redemption. He is the foolish shepherd. 
Zachariah's prophecy. You gonna put scripture up there? Uh, okay, I'll do that. E R D or A R D. You know that word's spelled a couple of different ways, and I never remember one, much less all. Uh, two horns. Revelation 13, and what the foolish shepherd, Zechariah 11. It's the last portion of that uh, chapter in Zechariah 11. He is also called the idle shepherd, I-D-O-L, in Zechariah 11. We'll come to that uh, in due course. When we get to um, the 11th of Daniel, the 11th of Daniel addresses itself more fully to this uh, false prophet. Uh, who is really a pseudo-messiah to Israel. This Antichrist is really not a false messiah to Israel, but this false prophet will be. Um, I don't know how to write all this in here, but I'll get it there somehow. Uh, but I wanted to include this. It's a very important phrase. Another in his own name. Put this passage over here. John chapter 5, I think it's about verse 46, somewhere in that area. Jesus said, I am come in my Father's name, and you will not receive me. Another shall come in his own name, and him you will receive. For what it's worth, the Greek word another here is the word alos. That means another of the same kind. Alright, this is now the man of sin. The Antichrist is not the man of sin. The man of sin is this false prophet. That's the one referred to in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He is that wicked one. Same passage. And he is that vile person. Daniel 11. All right, any... I think I got them all in there. Any comments or questions about this? Okay. Yes, ma'am. So the Antichrist will not be of Jewish descent? No, the Antichrist is Gentile. It's this one that will be out of Jewish descent. And I may open a can of worms when I say this, but the probability is that he'll come out of the tribe of Dan. Why that? God always had trouble getting along with Dan. That's the man of sin. Yes, that's the man of sin. Each time Dan shows up in the Scripture and God is enumerating genealogies, Dan gets two or three of his mentioned and that's all. The Lord just stops. Uh, that is not to suggest that the tribe of Dan is not among the redeemed of Israel. They assuredly are. But they are omitted from the sealing of the first fruits in Revelation chapter 7. As a matter of fact, two are omitted. If I get on this, we'll wipe it out. But I'm here. Two are omitted from the sealing of the first fruits in Revelation 7. You recall the passage. For not the earth nor the sea nor them that dwell therein till I have sealed my servants in their forehead. And I saw the number of them that were sealed, and it was 144,000, 12,000 out of the 12 tribes of Israel. Total of 144,000. However, out of those 12 tribes of Israel, two tribes are missing, and they are substituted for by Joseph and Levi. Levi, you'll remember, had no inheritance among the children of Israel, and his name was therefore never reckoned, reckoned with the allotting of the land proportions because their inheritance was the Lord. Mm -hmm. Levi is omitted, I'm sorry, uh, Dan is omitted and Levi is put in his place in the ceiling of 144,000. Otherwise you'd be out 12,000 of the 144,000. We'll explain what they are in a moment. The other one that's omitted is Ephraim. And for Ephraim is substituted the name Joseph, who of course was Ephraim's father. Mm -hmm. So from the 144,000, there are omitted those two from the sealing of the first fruit unto God out of Israel. A very quick explanation. The book of the prophet Hosea, God said, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Now this time of wrath is referred to, and we're talking about here, as the day of rebuke. And God said, Ephraim will be desolate. That is to say, Ephraim will have no first fruit sealing during that period. And he goes on the same passage in Hosea to explain why. Because he led his brother into sin. The northern tribe of Ephraim, one of the greatest of the tribes, was responsible for the spiritual decay that ultimately fell upon those northern ten tribes and finally upon Judah. And God held Ephraim responsible for that rebellion, beginning with the two uh, idols at Dan and at, and at Bethel, you recall, that caused Israel uh, to go away from the Lord. 
God held Ephraim responsible for that. And so he set, as he set that stumbling block before his brother, God gave him no sealing among the first fruit. But the tribe of Ephraim is present as a tribe in the redemption, finally, for Israel. So they're not excluded as a tribe. They're simply excluded from the first fruit of that 12,000. Now, as to Dan's exclusion, the reason I believe that he is uh, the tribe from which this false prophet will come, he has to come from some tribe, obviously. Uh, some would think he ought to come from Judah because he's going to reign as a false king. But if he's phony, he can be phony there as well. Others have thought he had to come out of Levi because that was the priestly tribe. Well, same reason. If he's going to be phony, he might as well be totally phony. And remember that there's only one Jew alive that has his genealogical record on, uh, on record right now. Mm -hmm. The only one. The rest of them were all destroyed in 70 A.D. If they know what tribe they're from, then they know so because it's been memorized by their family and passed down over all of these generations for a couple thousand years. There may be some of them who do know because a lot of them take that very seriously. But I have never asked a Jew in my life what tribe he was from, but what he didn't tell me was from Levi. Every one of them does. I've never certainly had anybody say, Dan. So the, the prophecy concerning Dan, why he's omitted. Genesis chapter 49, when God is prophesying concerning the 12 sons of Jacob and what will be their lot in the future history of Israel. Uh, this illustration to, to uh, emphasize what I'm saying. When he gives the prophecy to Judah, the prophecy to Judah is in two parts. First one regarding Judah himself. Judah is a lion's whelp. Then the second part of it, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now the last half of that prophecy, everybody recognizes a prophecy of the coming of Christ. Shiloh, the scepter, shall not depart from Judah till Shiloh come. But the first part of the prophecy belongs to Judah and his tribe. So it's in two parts because there are two individuals that are addressed there. Now of all of those twelve tribes that are prophesied concerning uh, their life, in that chapter only two of them have two parts. Judah's the one, you guessed it, Dan is the other. The first part of the prophecy of Dan is, Dan shall judge his people. Now only one uh, judge ever came out of the tribe of Dan to judge any part of the people of Israel. Who was he? Samson. Now that ends Samson's prophecy. Now the second part, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, who shall bite the horse's heel so that his rider shall fall backward. Now, Dan uh, had his problems. Uh, Samson had his problems, but he was no serpent, by the way. That's a term that's given to Satan. The next phrase that follows that comment is this, and it seems totally out of place unless you understand Dan to have this significant role in the last days. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Now, why would that be put in there? except that that serpent, by the way, is going to be the final threat to the people of Israel, at which time they're crying out to God for his salvation. I would suggest to you that Dan is omitted because that prophecy points to the fact that this false prophet is going to come out of that tribe. Close parenthesis. I said it, and I'm glad. Now, where was I with all of that? Because the man of sin would come out of the tribe of Dan. That's where you were whenever you took off. Well, all right, let's see if we can't recover this. All right, yes. Very good. Uh, let's come back to Daniel. I think I left you in Revelation. Maybe perhaps in the 15 minutes that we have left, I could uh, take you to chapter 9. And I realize I'm skipping a chapter, but this... Uh, needs to be discussed in terms of that timeline, so let's have a look at it. I brought also some other charts here if you want to distribute these. Now, many of you have this. I realize that. But uh, if you do and you want another one, there it is. If you don't, uh, then just hold on to it. Peruse it for what it's worth. I want to begin with verse 20 of Daniel 9. I need to read this first portion to put it in the context what is God telling Daniel? And while I was yet speaking and praying and confessing my sin, now the reason that he is speaking and praying and confessing his sin is because he understood, if you'll look back at verse 2, that the 70 years had been accomplished 
uh, for the deliverance of the nation of Israel from the Babylonian captivity. He believed that when Jeremiah prophesied 70 years, that it would be exactly that 70 years. He didn't spiritualize it or allegorize it. <clears throat> 70 years was 70 years. We need to learn the same lesson. So he's praying and beseeching the Lord and confessing his sin and the sin of his people to see that people released from this captivity and go back to their own land because God never does anything apart from prayer. So now here's God's response in verse 20. Did I confuse that or make it clear or do neither? As long as I didn't make it worse. Verse 20. And while I was yet speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, mountain speaking of that kingdom as we've emphasized before, a mountain in the prophetic scripture addresses a kingdom. That's the holy mountain of God. That's the same mountain addressed in Isaiah 2, the mountain of the house of the Lord. It's the kingdom of God. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision of the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplication, the commandment came forth, and I am come now to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. You know, hear God say that to you, I'll wipe you out. Daniel is referred to more than once in this book as the man greatly beloved. Mm. Amen. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Now remember, when Daniel gets this prophecy, he's a very old man. He's not that young fellow you see in the lion's den. He wasn't a young man then either, as we indicated. He was a very old man. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, upon thy holy city, to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, of all of these things that God wants to do, they are determined upon thy people and thy holy city. Now, who were Daniel's people? Israel. Who is his holy city? Jerusalem. Now, let's not change this to something other than what Daniel saw it to be. I don't have a right to interpret the interpretation to be something else. Do you follow that? Yes. So if God says it's Jerusalem, it isn't Washington, it isn't Rome, it isn't Moscow, it's Jerusalem. Now here's the work that God's going to finish in these 70 weeks. Now let me, you all through with this, I, I trust. The 70 weeks are 70 Shabuas or 70 sevens. The weeks are weeks of years. You have the same terminology used uh, with Jacob laboring to obtain Rachel his wife. You recall he labored for Rachel for seven, seven years. And Jacob says after he gets Leah instead of Rachel and he complains to, to uh, uh, Laban about it, he's, uh, he said, why have you deceived me? He said, well, we didn't write to give the youngest before the eldest. So I gave you Leah before you could have uh, Rachel, old bass, better check that out before he gets married to Rachel. Yes. What's his name? Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> naughty, naughty, naughty. People on the tape wonder why we do things like this. That's the idea what we're talking about. Uh, yeah, scrub that part. Um, now, where was I when I committed that foolishness? Rachel and Laban. Oh, Laban, yes, Laban. So it comes to Laban. He says, now, he says, why have you done this? Well, he said, didn't write to give the youngest before the eldest, so I give you Leah. And then he says, fulfill her week, and I'll give you Rachel also. So he labored 14 years total to obtain Rachel as wife. Seven for Leah and seven for Rachel. Fulfill her week. Shabuah. Same word. What was the week? It was a week of years. Now that's what you have here. Here you have 70 sevens, or 70 weeks of years, or a total, of course, of 490 years. So there's a timeline here from the time of the going forth of the commandment, the decree, if you would, to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, and then finally, the end. You've got a break there. Now, I've given you this sheet. While it doesn't deal with all of them, there are four sets of 490 years. If I don't uh, miss one of them. It was 490 years from the uh, uh, call of Abraham, because it's dealing with the people of God, and that's where you begin with Israel. From the call of Abraham 
uh, to the Exodus, if I didn't miss something, from the Exodus to the dedication of Solomon's temple, from the dedication of the temple to the uh, uh, decree of Artaxerxes, and from the decree of Artaxerxes to restore and to build Jerusalem, D-E-C-R-E-E, -E, that's what I'm trying to say there, to the second coming. All right, four sets of 490 years. Now, I've tried to illustrate on the sheet that you have because it's the most plainly biblical uh, corroboration of uh, what I'm trying to say, that it really wasn't 490 years. That the 490 years was only those years during which time the people of God were in their blessing. When the people of God are out of their blessing, God stops reckoning time. Now, one could pause here and emphasize what value that truth is to the child of God. If I may say it quickly, you forgive the repetition, it's the price of knowledge. Many of us are going to come before the Lord in that day and say something like, allow the hypothetical, all right, and say something like, Lord, it's been wonderful walking with you for these 30 years. And the Lord might say something in response, 30? I only remember five. And it would be unfortunate for me for debate, to debate with him at that point because I wouldn't want those 25 that he didn't remember brought up again. Amen. So God refuses to recall, refuses to enter in his divine record any period of time when his people are in rebellion against him and as a result of that rebellion have been put away. So the 490 years in each of these cases historically is longer than 490 years since I've come this far. All right, will you allow me this? The period of time from Abraham to the Exodus was historically 505 years. So you have to account for 15 years there, and it was 15 years from the time that Abraham took Hagar to wife to the time that Isaac was born. Now, God had already told Abraham that it was Sarah that was going to bring forth that seed. Because of his unbelief and his rebellion, God subtracted 50, 15 years, and he just kind of wandered doing his own thing until finally Isaac was born and God picked up the clock again, making a total of 490 years. From the Exodus uh, to the dedication of Solomon's temple is the record you have before you. 604 years historically. But the scripture cites 480 years, and plus you have seven years for the building of the temple, plus the fact it was not dedicated as immediately upon its completion. While it was used, it was not dedicated. <laughs> it was dedicated in the following jubilee year, which was three years later, making a total of 490 years. But historically, it was 604 years. The rest of it, as I've indicated there, is 124 years of the servitude that the children of Israel had in the course of the judges. You subtract that 124 from this time element, and you have 490 years. Now, somebody coming on two Kings, I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter uh, 6 and seeing this and knowing the history would immediately say, see, the Bible is not to be a book dependent upon. It isn't accurate. It wasn't supposed to be interpreted literally. Well, that's one of those things Peter said God cast as a stumbling block deliberately before the mind of unbelief so they'd trip over it. If I may say so again, when the buzzard flies over, it's looking for every rotten, corruptible, decaying, smelly thing it can find. That's what it feeds on. When the dove flies over, it's looking for the clean field to eat grain. And God gives them food according to their appetite. You follow that? Yeah. So as the believer approaches the Word of God, he wants to find the good things of God, and God gives him the good things of God. Amen. By faith we understand. We don't understand because we got it all figured out academically. By faith we understand. That's right. That's what Peter said. But the buzzard flies over, or the antagonistic commentator approaches the Word, and he's looking for a way to refute it. God gives him information. And what he does by that is aggravate his rebellion. You see that? <laughs> yeah. That's kind of ornery, you know. Have you ever noticed that no one takes a lot of time to prove the multiplication tables are wrong? <laughs> nobody ever goes out of their way to destroy Shakespeare. Uh, nobody ever goes out of their way to destroy some of the great, uh, I should say, uh, ancient histories that are written. They only go out of their way to destroy the Bible. You know why that is? Because the Bible makes moral demands upon people. None of the rest of that does. That's true. 
Okay, where did I get you here? To the temple of the degree? Yeah. This? Okay, so here's the 70 years captivity. I want to hasten through this. This period of time is 460, I'm sorry, 560 years long. And that accounts, of course, for the, historically that is, but biblically it's only 490 years. And that 70 years subtracted for that from that 560 years uh, sets that third 490-year time period. And by the way, the reason there's four of these, because you recall that four is the world number. We're looking at world kingdoms. And then finally, the decree that's before us now, and maybe we'll get it in after all. So let's read again. By the way, to lose anybody with that. I paid, gave you the paper to help illustrate that. It's tremendously important in terms of God's principle of dealing with His people. Okay, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, upon thy holy city. Finish transgression, make an end of sins, make reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up the vision of the prophecy, and anoint the most holy. The last three of those have not taken place. The first ones have. He has not brought in everlasting righteousness. He has not, in other words, removed iniquity from the earth and brought in uh, righteousness covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. That hadn't happened yet. Will happen when he comes again. He has not sealed up the vision and the prophecy. That is to say, he has not finished what he's doing with Israel and with the church as well. And he has not anointed the most holy. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, that was the decree of Artaxerxes to restore and to build Jerusalem, a decree made in 445 B.C., I might add, which on our calendar would have been the 14th of March. The 14th of March. You can figure this whole thing out to the day, but we're not going to do that tonight. Where did I leave that? Unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, or 49 years. And the reason that's set apart is because it took 49 years to restore the city of Jerusalem. 50 years they had a jubilee. And threescore and two weeks, or another 62 weeks, or another 434 years, making a total of 483 years. And the streets shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times, very troublous times, it took in that 50 years to build that city. And after threescore and two weeks, or after the second set, or the 434 years, shall Messiah be cut off. Now that's his death. It's the same term that Isaiah 53 uses. He is cut off, not for himself. Not... Uh, uh, not having received that is right, that which is rightfully his, that is to say the kingdom. Isaiah 53 said he's cut off out of the land of the living and addresses his death. So unto the introduction of Messiah the Prince from the time of the decree is a total of 483 years calculated precisely to the day on a corrected calendar. It brings you to the 6th of April, A.D. 1932, when Jesus Christ entered through the east gate of Jerusalem and they cried, Hosanna to the Son of David, and the prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9, Behold, O Israel, your king cometh. He is lowly on the colt, the full of an ass is fulfilled. And when he entered through the east gate and they cried, Hosanna to the Son of David, God's clock stopped. And they crucified Messiah. And the same people on that day that cried Hosanna was a few, were a few days later crying crucifying. And the people of the prince that shall come, that's Titus, general under the Caesars, who invaded Jerusalem in 70 A.D., shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood, and unto the end wars and desolations are determined. That picks up the history of Israel going from the destruction under Titus unto the end time. Now verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Shabuah, seven years. Now Titus didn't do that. Titus made no covenant. He destroyed everything that came, uh, he came across. Utterly destroyed. But that prince that's going to come out of this same nation in the last days is going to make a treaty with Israel for a seven-year period. That's what we are yet anticipating. So a European kingdom is going to make a seven-year covenant with the leadership in Israel in the last days. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now watch this. And in the midst of the week shall he cause, or in other words, after three and one half years, yes? Mm -hmm. Shall he cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolator, literally. Talking about the person who brought the mess about. Or the Antichrist. Any comments or questions? That was kind of a quick trip. You got it, I think. 
Now, give some consideration to these sheets I gave you if you've not done so already. That's a tremendous principle uh, uh, addressed in the Scripture, and God is very orderly in how He does things. Everything is according to His prescribed plan. God didn't wind this thing up and just walk away and let it run down as He would see fit. <laughs> Any other? Yes, ma'am. Why God would do something so great and bring Israel back into the land when Israel's clock isn't going? Well, see, they're not a restored people yet. He's only uh, addressing their national position so that, that he can address them spiritually. Two prophecies regarding Israel, one from Isaiah, the other from Zechariah. The one from Isaiah, uh, behold, uh, a nation shall be born in a day. We saw that happen 14 May. 47, 48, I'm sorry, 48. 47 was when the UN uh, gave them a sovereignty to the land. Uh, then the second prophecy in Zechariah is, Behold, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now that hadn't happened yet. So that when God begins to address Himself particularly to Israel in their chastening, that's when His clock is going to start again. So right now, uh, He is addressing Himself particularly to the Gentiles. And Israel is in this state of blindness. When the blindness begins to be taken away, that's when God is addressing Himself to them again. So it's a national restoration we're seeing, not a, a personal or a, a spiritual one. We're seeing the uh, fig tree restored. We are not seeing the vine uh, restored. Anything else? Is there anything that we could or should be doing to change any of this? I mean... We can't really change it. Is there anything we can do? We cannot change the timeline. But what we can do is ease the burden of those people who are experiencing it. Thus the admonition of the psalmist is, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they shall prosper that love thee. It's ever the injunction uh, of the Lord to the people of God to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Yes. As to the timeline, no, no. Uh, Acts 17, God hath appointed a day wherein He will judge all men by that man whom He hath ordained. It's already on his calendar. Anything else? All right, let me remind you that next week we will not meet. I have to be out of the state next week, and we will not meet next week. And so if you come across anyone who has not heard that, please make mention of that, and then we'll pick it up uh, the week following. I think that's the 30th, uh, so we'll pick it up the week following. February the 6th. February the 6th. All right, thank you, brother. Thursday. Bless you all.